I think the great tradition understood that Platonism had really become the perennial philosophy of late antiquity, for example, and for good reason, uh, because it offered a revolutionary, I would even say an unrivaled perspective in, in some sense, that attempted to explain transcendent reality. And we will turn eventually to, you know, someone like Occam and nominalism much, much later. But unlike something like nominalism, Platonism, just at its very core, it really believed that universals are real. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine, an Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am your host today. My name is Samuel Parkinson. I am the Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology at the Gulf Theological Seminary and the United Arab Emirates. And I once again have the joy of interviewing your regular host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, on his forthcoming book with Zondervan Academic called The Reformation as Renewal. Retrieving the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. I'm excited to pick up our conversation. This is part two of a conversation that we have already begun. So uh, listeners, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that first episode if you have not had a chance yet. Um, but yeah, we are talking through the first section of your book, Matthew, on the Reformation's Catholic context. And I'm excited to to get back to it. So Welcome back. Yeah. Thanks for having me back, Sam. So we're just going to dive back in, assuming that our listeners are all caught up from that first episode. We'll just continue on in the conversation. And so just working through that first section of the book, we come now to chapter five, and you take a, a deep dive into the philosophical situation of the medieval era. And so take a few minutes to give us the lay of the land. Why, why is classical philosophy so important? for understanding how the metaphysic of the reformers informed their theology. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I want to say is, in one sense, it's a deep dive. You're right. In another sense, I feel I felt as though when I was writing it, I was I was just scratching the surface. Right. Uh, there is whenever you bring into the conversation the church fathers, uh, let alone the way that they are retrieving, appropriating, transforming something like. Uh, the the Platonist tradition, that could be a book in itself. <laughs> so mm -hmm. these are some deep waters. And my goal actually was really quite modest. I wasn't trying to, I'm not trying to cover everything or, or give a exhaustive survey, but rather show, uh, give some context for, for why someone like an Augustine or a Thomas Aquinas, or why, we'll get to this later, but why this movement called Renaissance Humanism? Why are all of these groups in conversation with this Greek philosophical tradition and its metaphysic? So the first thing I, I think I should say to begin with is in order to understand why there is a break, as I would call it, in the late medieval period, just on the eve of the Reformation, so think here 13th, 14th, yeah especially 14th and 15th centuries, which we will talk about why there's a break there with earlier 
patristic and medieval thinkers, you have to know something at least about the history of Greek philosophy, its metaphysic, or or what we might call Platonism itself. Mm. Now, sometimes that word Platonism throws people off, even the, the the phrase Christian Platonism, which we can talk about. But but really, what we are after is is actually quite simple: referring to a tradition of intellectual thought that really majored on the fact that there is a, a strong sense of transcendence, uh, a strong sense of mm-hmm. transcendentalism, as we, if we could call it that. And so when you open, say, a church father like Augustine, uh, among many others, the East as well, I don't, we shouldn't leave the East out of this conversation. The Cappadocians are also interacting mm-hmm. with this tradition for the sake of right. Trinitarian controversies. But from the church fathers to the classics of the high Middle Ages, Many, I mean, when you look at something like late antiquity, everybody in one way or another is indebted to and engaging, some even transforming what we are calling Platonism. Now, just to clarify at the start here, uh, Platonism was was not merely, I think we sometimes think of it this way as if, oh, these church fathers or these medieval classics, they are just finding this Platonic philosophy adaptable to Christianity as if it just happens to be a convenient fit at that time for theology. You can kind of pick and choose, you know, what, what you want to supplement. I don't think that's actually an accurate picture. Instead, I think mm. the great tradition understood that Platonism had really become the perennial philosophy of late antiquity, for example, and for good reason, uh, because it offered a revolutionary, I would even say an unrivaled perspective in, in some sense that attempted to explain transcendent reality. And we will turn eventually to, you know, someone like Occam and nominalism much, much later. But unlike something like nominalism, Platonism, just at its very core, it, it really believed that universals are real. Uh, and so realism is at the heart of this. It ensured the goodness of this world was was not left to material mechanical processes, but participates in the good, which transcends the limitations of, of finitude. And, and so realism created space for transcendent divinity, especially as we move the conversation towards uh, the Christian reception. And not just, you know, divinity in the most general sense, but even specifics, uh, even perfections, things like pure actuality and infinitude and and timelessness and immutability and omnipresence and so much more. And so I think I would put it this way, and and here I'm very much indebted to others. You know, you think of John Peter Kenny and some of his Mm -hmm. recent work, Lloyd Gerson and and his work, his trilogy, and and many other scholars. I mean, they all make this point in different ways, but I think we're all trying to say the same thing by saying that there's this transcendent reality. Well, Platonism is is simply providing a map for the soul's ascent. In other words, its most basic sense, it ensures that the soul can participate in something beyond that which is just material and the way that this happens, well, it happens by means of contemplation, which ultimately uh, the promise is communion itself. And of course, yeah. you know, Platonism is is quite diverse uh, over time and its theories over, you know, exactly how do these universals, how, how should we understand them? But at its heart, realism really is, is knit right into the fabric of what we call today the great tradition. And so 
in past centuries to be Christian uh, simply meant to be a transcendentalist. And I, I think that's important to emphasize because not any philosophy would do. <laughs> right. Uh, yep. I mean, you, you really do look in vain to try to find, say, a group of Christian Epicureans. Yep. Yep. <laughs> But Platonism, though it has some serious flaws, and Augustine would point some of these out, nonetheless, it it really did, in their minds, display a a power that is, you know, you think of Psalm 19, uh, is attributed to natural revelation. And so they felt like we are on good biblical grounds here to look for truth where truth is found and where it actually, you know, it's not just random, but it actually frames the way we participate in transcendent reality, even if, at the end of the day, we we need to refine its conclusions and and the way its logic works. So, you know, there's many ways that this occurred. Uh, You know, if we, we don't have time to explore all of these, but these figures, but, you know, you just think of someone as significant as Plato himself and his allegory of the cave and uh, many other uh, illustrations he used in which he is attempting to explain how we move beyond the shadows, so to speak. And in order to do that, Plato posits that there must be forms. There must be these ideas, as, as we sometimes call them, in which we actually can move beyond the shadows to and, and ascend to that, to that, ultimately, that which is good. And, and even be illumined by the good to then, as a result, have true knowledge and and so Plato then uh, began to experiment in many ways with you know how does illumination work and how are we liberated mm-hmm. from you know our our fixation on lesser goods in the material world uh, how do we move from the world of becoming and change to to this world of being and uh, I, I think sometimes this is overlooked I mean Plato, for Plato I think he was so unique because. In a sense, he he really does believe even in a a type of creator, a type of creator god, a craftsman, mm-hmm. who, you know, the origin of things can be traced back to, and and the one who patterns the world after these ideas, he really is a trailblazer in this sense. He's trying to answer some of those older philosophical questions over the one and the many, to understand how how is it that we ascend to to the one itself. And so yeah. uh, this becomes quite instrumental because you think of someone like Aristotle, uh, not long after Plato, who is learning from Plato. And I think this is also corrective. I, th- I think there's been a narrative that has essentially said, well, we must see these two figures in contrast to, to one another. But, yeah. you know, whether it's Aristotle or someone much later like Plotinus, that would have been strange to them. Uh, it, yeah. It's not that they didn't have differences or disagreements. They did with Plato. But more or less, they do see themselves within the same stream that we right. we now call Platonism. And so, you know, someone like Aristotle, of course, he has different gifts and really different aims and purposes in many respects uh, as he's trying to actually map out <laughs> in, in very concrete ways Plato's original outlook in, in a more what we might call a systematic framework. And he advances. He, he really does advance, I, I think, metaphysics. Even you know, what we today call this perennial value of first principles, I mean, in many ways that's you know, to Aristotle's credit. Plato's world of becoming is 
you know, a world of change. And Aristotle takes that seriously as he then starts to observe this world. What is happening exactly to bring about this process of becoming? And how then do we have, uh, have to develop a grammar, even a vocabulary to explain how change must then be traced to an absolute necessity, one who, who is a first unmoved mover. And so many of our listeners will be familiar with, with that phrase. And so Aristotle, too, posits a type of creator God who's, in his mind, a, a first act, a, an unmoved mm-hmm. mover, and whose existence can then explain all the movement and, and change that we observe in, in the world. Now, of course, we have to mention, right, that with Aristotle, he does have a disagreement with Plato. You know, Plato is very creative, imaginative to say, well, we have to get beyond the cave to, to these ideas and forms uh, in which we come into the light itself. But for Plato, these ideas and forms are they're not independent of one another, but but they are more or less in a realm of their own. And so Aristotle takes issue with yeah. this. He takes issue with, with whether they exist out there in this third realm. And instead, you know, just to put it very crudely, he modifies Plato's realism by by saying, well, the existence of these ideas must be in particulars. And so if if someone like uh, Plato is has this transcendent understanding of universals, we could say that uh, Aristotle has a concrete understanding of these universals, and we don't have time, but there's a, there's a whole uh, number of reasons why Aristotle then turns to, to these particulars uh, in order to explain the reality we experience with our senses. But long story short, from there, really, we do see a bit of a uh, an evolution of Platonic thought. Uh, you know, you have... Yes really just before Christ. And then the 200 years after Christ, you have what's called the rise of Middle Platonism. There's all kinds of interesting Mm -hmm. debates and discussions as to how to understand this period. Is it a type of resurgence? But then with time, you have the rise also of of what we would call, well, especially with someone like Plotinus, who's, who's living in the third century AD, you have the rise of what has now been called Neoplatonism. And so there's mm-hmm. been all kinds of fascinating studies as to how, how does Neoplatonism advance and surpass Middle Platonism. And uh, here I, I would just say, you know, the, the label Neoplatonism, we may be stuck with it. <laughs> it's a little unfortunate, yeah. maybe a lot unfortunate. It, it tends to be a bit biased uh, even. I think it, yeah. we see its prevalence with modern German philosophy it tends to assume a bit more discontinuity between, exactly. say, a, a Plotinus and the Platonists who came before him. But, you know, it, it doesn't take long to read Plotinus, and you can see in his own words, he thinks of himself as, he may be even a bit too modest. <laughs> he thinks of yeah. himself as, as really just carrying on the Platonist tradition, not not doing something original. I think he actually is in many respects. He's reconciling some of the tensions he sees he sees in the past. 
we don't have time to get into it, but I do give a, a little bit of a, a just a, a box to explain, you know, how uh, someone like Plotinus then understands, you know, the one, the good, the first principle, and then and then how he creates this, uh, he, he makes room for, I should say, the the intellect or uh, the second principle, this unmoved mover, and then and then even a third, the soul, and the you know how the soul of the universe and how he creates this hierarchy. But he's trying to then reconcile. And actually advance uh, so much of the tradition that's come before him. All that to say, when we turn then to the church fathers, it's not a surprise. Maybe it is a surprise because we we're <laughs> we're so foreign to it today. But it's not it's not a surprise to look at the patristic era and discover that someone like an Augustine, for example, is incredibly indebted. Even though he will be critical, he's incredibly indebted to Platonist authors. And yeah. a lot of this, I mean, you could just open the Confessions or the City of God. He actually is very transparent about how this occurs, uh, you know, as he's moving from Manichaeanism towards closer and closer towards Christianity. Christianity is a stumbling block for him um, because of his metaphysical presuppositions. I mean, he yeah. says it in Confessions. He thinks of God as if God's this like elephant, this this huge elephant that uh, is just mm-hmm. you know so big that it's it's just occupies this massive amount of space. And you got you know you got a bigger space over here. You've got more of God. You got a lesser space over here. Well, you have a lesser part of God. And really, it takes the Platonist books, as he calls them, to wake him up to realize, actually, that's that's entirely wrong. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, God's not spread out, but he learns a sense of transcendence from these Platonist books. And he describes it as though, well, they teach him divine transcendence and what that entails, especially with God's perfections, God's immutability and eternity and so much more. And he says it's like uh, they took him to the mountaintop so that he could see clearly. And suddenly he was able to come back to the Bible and those barriers and stumbling blocks had disappeared. He understood now that he could open the Old Testament and there was a spiritual sense because of who the divine author is. And that helped him, especially with the problem of evil in which he was struggling to understand, you know, is evil just absorbed into the the being of God, as almost in a in a materialistic sense, a corporeal sense, and so this this helps Augustine in countless ways. And then he, of course, will turn and say, you know, even though it took me to the mountaintop, uh, it took me to the mountaintop, and so it cleared my vision so that I could see finally the the promised land. It's over there, <laughs> uh, but yeah. but at the same time, Augustine says it didn't give me the map for how to get there. Or if if it did, it was it was mistaken on on exactly how to get there. It's not merely that this knowledge that we've gained somehow uh, allows us to ascend, but we actually need God Himself to to drop down Jacob's ladder. <laughs> and, yes. and Augustine says, "Well, that ladder must be Christ." And this was something just unimaginable to the Platonists that here the Son of God would be made flesh. Uh, which would have been offensive, but would be made flesh. And, and Augustine realizes, oh, this is this is the ladder. This is the map that then took me all the way to Christ and the promised land. So, and of course, we I, I suppose we should also mention, uh, you know, how this develops. I mean, Augustine capitalizes on certain Platonist features, right? Uh, these ideas, he says, well, these aren't in some third realm, they're actually in the mind of God. And then comes along, you know, if we fast forward to the medieval 
period, high Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, right? And Thomas takes things even further, I, I think. he I think sometimes he's painted as this, you know, strict Aristotelian, but actually that's way too simplistic. It's more complicated than that. He has sympathies with both Plato and Aristotle, and he has criticisms of both Plato and Aristotle. So on the one hand, he's very Augustinian. He too will have a criticism of Plato to say, yeah, these ideas or forms, these, these don't these aren't out there in this third realm. They actually are in the mind of God. And he gives a whole elaborate, you know, treatment of classical theism to explain how. But he will turn around and say, yeah, you know, Aristotle has a point when he says that these these ideas then subsist and and these concrete particulars. But he's a little bit uneasy with Aristotle because he feels as if, well, in Aristotle, there's because of this this you know swinging of the pendulum now there's a deficiency of participation and so thomas really embarks on a quest to say well how do i then reconcile and overcome some of these weaknesses how do i repurpose for example aristotle's language of act and potency to actually mm-hmm. explain how we participate in the the christian creator who is right. pure actuality himself and I explore some of this at length in my book here. You know, Aquinas is Aquinas, right? He's He has some deep insights where he then elaborates to explain, well, how is participation something that depends on, say, divine ideas? And how do these divine ideas explain how God creates the world? And and then he moves forward to, to then move from divine ideas to, say, Christology and, and his commentary on John or even his doctrine of creation in which he starts to to connect his metaphysic to inform you know how we we have a christian doctrine of creation out of nothing so all that to say i think what we see across the board then is a bit of an evolution so that by the time you get to someone like thomas aquinas there really is an advancement in a in a very positive yes. sense you know some have called this a, a map of reality uh, you think of someone like uh, lloyd gerson the way that he lays down uh, that label Christian Platonism and and says, well, it's anti-materialism, it's anti-mechanism, it's anti-nominalism, it's anti-relativism, it's anti-skepticism. And there's good reason for why he's doing that. It, it takes on a certain polemical posture. But the label Christian Platonism, it never denies that you know, it's necessary to distinguish between, say, you know, Plato's realism of transcendent universals and Aristotle's realism of concrete, imminent universals and all that. It, it doesn't even deny that there's going to be diversity between, say, an Augustine and a Thomas as they're trying to work out this realist uh, metaphysic. But I think yeah. I think the, the key point is, you know, whether you call it something like Christian Platonism or maybe another phrase is just uh, I know John Peter Kenny has used this phrase when he has said you know don't don't get tripped up over the label you know we could call it Christian transcendentalism Christian Platonism well that that label has a historical marker it's almost unavoidable I mean you can't read the primary yeah. sources without that label Christian transcendentalism really gets at the the philosophy therein but I think something important to say here is. When we look at like modern and even postmodern philosophers and even theologians, sometimes they're prone to misunderstand or, you know, in their criticism of Christian Platonism. And I think there's a reason for that. I think sometimes our tendency is just to 
uh, especially today, to just re- try to reduce it <laughs> to to a set mm-hmm. of of doctrines. Like you know, just tell me what yes. what the beliefs are, and and then I'll decide if it's you know compatible or not with Christianity. But that actually doesn't fairly or accurately treat it for what it is. It's not so much that it is this religion or this systematic you know this system. I think that sets us off in the wrong direction. I think we yeah. have to remember, no, this is a a grand mode for contemplating reality at large. And exactly. I think yeah. even Socrates, right? Socrates goes further to, to describe it almost as a way of life. Uh, they didn't disconnect these things. Yeah. And so in, in that sense, they're trying to understand how something like participation is the very tapestry or fabric of true reality and so all true knowledge of the divine the eternal that which is real is then for them is as John Peter Kenny has said it's a an exercise in communion and i think that helps that helps in some mm-hmm. ways because then we understand yeah. okay participation within this this realist fabric or metaphysic it then has a way of defining everything from divine providence and here i'm talking about the christian faith from divine providence to union and with Christ to, to communion with the Trinity to even eschatology and the beatific vision itself. And in that sense, I guess the point of this long <laughs> introduction is this. You know, what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is for the, the first just roughly 1,200 or so years of church history, it's not that there's no disagreements as they're working through and trying to reconcile this intersection of Greek philosophy and Christianity. But on the whole, what we see is everyone is trying to incorporate this idea of transcendent reality. And they're doing so, they they believe, they believe that they are doing so in a way that mimics Paul in the Areopagus on, in Acts 17, and that they're doing so in a way that is taking seriously texts like Psalm 19 and natural revelation, how mm-hmm. that gives us a natural theology. And as they come to this intersection, they more or less have an agreement over key key concepts like realism and universals, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, right. And so that's where, yeah, it's not that there's no diversity. There is, but uh, there is a pretty remarkable, I mean, that's a long time period, 1,200 years, a pretty remarkable yeah continuity, even between East and West, as they are discerning yeah. ways, not just to merely appropriate Platonism, but to transform it as they correct it and, and, and think, oh, we can actually bring this to, to further fulfillment in Christianity. Yeah, at this point, I can anticipate perhaps a couple of questions, two, two different kinds of questions that come up in light of all of that, that are connected. I think one would be, why does all of this matter? There's so much that you just talked about in terms of these different philosophers and the conversation that they're having with one another over the course of 1200 years. And the answer to that is, unless we kind of trace out some of these roots of these ideas, we won't really understand the reformers in their own context because they're having a conversation, that they're entering into a conversation that's already taking place. Mm. So we, we, it's important that we get an idea of how, how they got there. But then the other question, and, and this is, I say that it's related because I think both of these 
questions are coming from a very modern point of view. The second question is something like, well, what what actually even is Platonism? And the way that you described it, it seems so broad that it just encapsulates too much. And I think that that objection is coming from a very modern way of thinking that's very fastidious about uh, specific definitions and schools and camps and um, and these sort of things. And the fact is, I think I really like this chapter because I think you did a good job of explaining how that's not how these great thinkers of yesteryear did philosophy and yeah. theology. Yeah, it's not. They, their own. So if, if it's, if we have a problem with the fact that there's this term is too broad or this designation of realism is too broad and includes too many people, we really have to take that up with them. Yeah. Because the, the way that you described it, you're exactly right. By the time you get to someone like Plotinus or by the time you get to someone like uh, Augustine, when, when Augustine in the Confessions is talking about the books of the Platonist, yeah. if, if, we, if we insist on having a very, very specific definition of what Platonism must be and it has to fit to you know these doctrines that are traceable in Plato himself, then – we would have to object to Augustine's language as well, because the Platonism that he was interacting with is a Platonism that had evolved a lot. And it was a continuous evolution, but they didn't see it as a, we're, we're going to completely repudiate Plato and start something new, um, nor were they, did they feel any pressure to say, in order for us to call ourselves Platonists, we must be able to trace 100% of our ideas back to the writing of Plato himself. That's not a restriction that they placed on themselves. Mm. And so when figures like yourself or Gerson or the, you know, the authors in the, the book that uh, John Peter Kenny and Alexander Hampton co-edited, that Christian Platonism, a history, when, when the figures in these modern day advocates of Christian Platonism or Hans Borsma or Craig Carter, when they use the term in this way, they're using the term the way that the figures throughout history have used the term. And again, it's it's not convenient for us if we want to be able to bracket all of the unique contributions into their own schools, into their own schools of thoughts or something like that. But that's not how pre-modern thinkers did philosophy. They saw themselves as taking part in an ongoing conversation. And so, you know, in in one sense, I I think that there's a lot of strength to that. And I want to say, yeah, there there is some kind of continuity. Call it whatever you want. You need to be able to recognize the agreement that these various disparate figures have with one another. Mm. So if you don't want to call it Christian Platonism, you got to call it something else. Yeah. But there is a part of me that says, you know, I think there is something intrinsically right about defining the way that we do philosophy, not primarily with discontinuity, carving out our own specific contributions, but rather making our contributions within a broader stream, you know, identifying mm-hmm. ourselves within a broader stream. So you don't really necessarily advocate for that in this. You're more yeah. descriptive in the book, but I think you do a good job of articulating how this is how these figures thought of themselves, mm. but not forever. You know, the, the situation that we arrive at today yeah. where there are modern, there's a very modern disjointed kind of way of thinking about how to philosophize, how to theologize. It started somewhere. And so 
maybe you can talk to us a little bit about when the shift takes place. When when exactly do you see yeah. um, a shift take place? Yeah, and and again, like most things in history, it's it sometimes it's gradual. It, it's not as if this all happens in a single year or a single decade. It it sometimes is gradual. But I do think you're right, Sam. I do think you're right to to observe there is something happens. <laughs> so something mm-hmm. changes and the further you go the more radical it becomes. Now, there's been all kinds of discussion and debate as you know exactly where does this take place and in here I'm referring to the rise of, you know, voluntarism, university, nominalism mm-hmm. and so much more that really takes us to the 14th, the 13th, 14th and 15th centuries. Where do you begin? Goodness. But I think uh, John Don Scotus is uh, a good marker at this point. Uh, Here we have this 13th century, beginning of the 14th century, very brilliant intellect. And I I think something, though, begins to change, though. Uh, Really, it doesn't even begin with him. Actually, it's it's really really on the eve of his education. Uh, And so here, you know, if we go to Paris, for example, which in many ways – uh, was you know such a, the University of Paris, for example, was the the mecca of of so much of of intellectual and philosophical and theological thought in the 13th century. But if we go to the University of Paris, uh, we meet a bishop of Paris. Uh, his name is Stephen Tempier, and he publishes what is called this condemnation, hundreds of theses that denounce the the philosophical and theological beliefs. Now, there's a bit of ambiguity, you know, who, who exactly is he targeting? It seems to be the case <laughs> that uh, he doesn't exactly name, you know, who he's after entirely. But it seems if if we do some good detective work that he is directing this towards a, a group on faculty. And this theology faculty, I'm sure this is going to surprise people, right? There's frustrations with faculty. <laughs> uh, and here you have uh, a bit of tension between the faculty of arts, who he thinks are you know, overstepping their discipline. Perhaps this is a, a major factor. There's a bit of some guesswork there. But um, if we look at the theses, what, what do we see? Well, we see that Aristotelian philosophy is, is one of the, the targets and, you know, it doesn't take long to put together, well, okay, if that's the case, then, you know, Thomas is probably in the background here as a, as a target as well, even though he's dead by then. But his, you know, mm-hmm. his thought is living mm-hmm. on in, in his students. Tempier is interesting because he criticizes the reliance on reason, specifically a dependence on Aristotelian use of reason, mm-hmm. and advocates instead that philosophy should be kept separate from theology. Now, you think of everything we just talked about that's a that's a significant change because mm. when you look at that whole great conversation they assumed a very close compatibility and harmony between faith and reason or more broadly philosophy and theology and this begins to change for him uh you know since nothing can limit uh, and this is this is really where he goes with it you if we if you're wondering like where does this come out of well he introduces though it's not new with him others before him uh had this concept of god's absolute power but but for him he he really takes it further to say well god may act and does act in ways that even defy natural explanation uh, yeah. and, and nothing can limit God's freedom in creation, not not even the laws of nature, logic, or reason. Uh, you, you just you, you cannot limit God in any of these ways. 
And so God is free in a very voluntarist sense to to always do to the contrary. And he, mm. and uh, this there doesn't have to be any you know justification for why he may transgress or even violate our our own sense of rationality or even even morality itself. And so suddenly mm-hmm. you have a change. I mean, other medieval scholars have observed this these years and said, well, they, they have essentially said there is a philosophy seems to become more logical and semantic. There seems to be a, a bit of a crisis introduced to metaphysics. It also tends to be a bit more analytical now than than synthetic and in, intellective, as we might call it. And it really evolves from there. So, you, you know, you fast forward to 1286, you have this Franciscan John Peckham who takes this condemnation to another level. <laughs> and he goes after mm. Thomas Aquinas himself and says, well, Thomas is really, you know, his darkness itself <laughs> uh, because he's wow. he's destroyed what this Augustinian heritage, which for him means, you know, Bonaventure and who, who he thinks is the true heir of, of uh, Augustine. And mm. this, it really does escalate. All of this is happening in the this is all in the air and so by the time you know you have someone like scotus who arrives on the scene it, it we don't know entirely you know how how indebted is he to some of these figures and who did he read entirely some of that's a bit uh hard to determine but we do know that when you come to scotus scotus he's occupied with all sorts of these metaphysical and even epistemological questions and we, as his thought matures, we start to see the seeds, at least, of this division uh, that I alluded to between metaphysics and theology, as, as if the two should be should be kept more separate from one another. Now, this evolves in all kinds of ways. You know, you have like a, a, a Scotus scholar like Richard Cross, for example, who says none of the principles or axioms of theology for Scotus are shared by any other kind of study. And so metaphysics or natural science. And so nothing that we can know about God by natural reason belongs to the study of theology. I mean, that's a, that's a very strong statement there, but he's trying to get at how strong this division is. All that to say, mm. there's a couple of pointers, I would say, with Scotus in particular. Uh, one is he he does capitalize on this idea of God's ordained power. Now, again, I mean, Thomas Aquinas talked about this as well, so it's, this isn't new, but Scotus really puts a voluntarist emphasis here on, on God's absolute power to the point where he'll say, he, he says at one point, without contradiction, the will could will the opposite, and thus it could justly will such. And, and what he means by that is, uh, you know, take the commands of God. Well, on the one hand, Scotus doesn't go so far to say, well, this, these are completely arbitrary. Uh, that's a bit of a caricature of him. He actually does think that some of those early commands, you know, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, these do reflect God's nature. Th- these aren't indifferent. But at the same time, Anything beyond laws that bind God to his nature, he says, well, it could be otherwise. And so God's right. This has implications then for, okay, how then do we order, logically speaking, God's intellect and God's will? Because for someone like Thomas, well, God's knowledge and intellect in many ways governed what we said about his will. But for Scotus, this can't be assumed anymore. Uh, his will may now govern his, his knowledge or his intellect or even control his will. All that to say, this change of order is key because suddenly 
it raises all kinds of, of disagreements and other questions about not just philosophy, but even theology. And I, I think, you know, we can go too far to act like, you know, Scotus is just, you know, introducing a very arbitrary or indifferent God here. But at the same time, we don't want to swing the pendulum as a correction too far because, I mean, you even have folks like Thomas Williams who says, well, at the end of the day, there still is a degree of indifference that's inevitable for for someone like Scotus. Now, the second thing I I want to mention here is when this voluntarism is then accompanied by – so we're trying to get the full picture here just briefly – when it's accompanied by then – this second change, which is a move away from the analogy of being to the university of being, uh, suddenly you have a weakening of, say, divine simplicity. And, and that's not even my mm. criticism. It, even Scotus scholars acknowledge that much. Now, to be yeah. fair to him, Scotus is not targeting Thomas Aquinas directly. He he has in mind someone like Henry of, of, of uh, Ghent or Gent, who went the direction of equivocation and so he is trying to correct that. But in the end, their analogical predication is not lost on Scotus. In fact, he assumes it in many yeah. ways as he's making this argument for for university to say that, well, things take being, for example. You actually can have the same meaning whether you are referring to a divine being or a human being. And so this proves this proves instrumental for his thought because university – also then meant that, well, he was quite suspicious then of that, what we call that that way of remotion, uh, a method which describes God by precluding all that cannot be ascribed to God. He, he even, just, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, just to, just to tie back into what we were talking about before, that way of theologizing is predicated on this uh, realist or transcendental philosophy that you had described before. And so by embracing a university of being, we're already taking a almost an intentional step away from this transcendental way of viewing philosophy, correct? Yeah. And that raises another issue, Sam, because I think in an attempt to defend Scotus, some have said, well, Scotus isn't treating university he doesn't think this threatens the, the creator-creature distinction. So you can still have mm-hmm. an infinite God and a, and a finite humanity as if for him, this univocity theory, it's merely a semantic maneuver that then substantiates knowledge of God. Now, you know, point taken, I, I think that we have to pay attention to his motives, right? Well, you know, what is he after here? Right. And I think there's truth to that. On the other hand, even advocates of Scotus's univocity theory, uh, some of them still will make the argument that, well, there still are ontological consequences that follow for, say, you know, natural theology and even yeah. serious theological consequences for revealed theology. So, for example, you know, I mentioned simplicity. Scotus's turn to univocity, well, it entails a rejection of a certain, uh, you know, what, what many in the great tradition would have understood by divine simplicity because univocity if you take Thomas Aquinas, he will say something like, well, God's without parts, and this means his essence is his attributes, and likewise, his attributes are identical with one another. But now, by contrast, univocity entails redefining simplicity in a, in a much weaker sense. The attributes are essential to God's essence, but dissimilar. 
And so there's a formal difference between God's attributes. And, well, because being must be predicated of God and man and the creator and the creature in, in the same sense. And if you don't want to take my word for it, you know, read, read someone like Richard Cross, who does an excellent job describing why he thinks in Scotus's view, this ends up creating a, what he calls a weakening of not just simplicity, but d- divine ineffability as well. Because mm. at the end of the day, uh, and yeah, that's right. At the end of the day, there's ultimately a, a difference that you have to decide. Is this just a difference between God and man, a difference of degree, as opposed right. to what we see in the analogical way, which is far more than that. Long story short, there are a number of implications that have been pointed out for Scotus then and his understanding of sin and the autonomy of the human will, as well as it doesn't just stop there, but there's all kinds of discussion as, you know, is he semi-plagian? Is he plagian? There's all kinds of debates there, how to understand what he's saying there. I think at the very least, we have to recognize that there, there are implications. There is a strong degree of autonomy. And the big question it raises, even beyond soteriology, is, is there room left for the doctrine of participation? And that's the Mm -hmm. big question, because whether you're talking about, say, grace itself, you know, Scotus doesn't necessarily question whether God infuses habitual grace so that it inheres within and transforms. But he does break from earlier scholastics by questioning whether God must and should do so. And so there's a mm. there's a bit of an autonomy introduced here. And so by appealing yeah. to the will of God, the question is raised, well, how necessary is participation? And even if he has a, a subtle understanding of participation, it seems to be very different than than what came before. Now, the last thing I, I would just mention here is that there does seem to be, you know, a bit of debate here between, you know, radical orthodoxy who's highly critical. Of Scotus, and then those who have, who have more or less corrected radical orthodoxy, saying you know you could have a more accurate view of Scotus. But regardless, I think in the end, um, the point to understand is that even if radical orthodoxy is not entirely you know accurate in their understanding of Scotus, uh, they are putting their finger on a change that's taken place. So that these voluntarist yeah. priorities, well, we have to keep in mind that even those who are defending Scotus, they're still they're doing so because they too are quite inclined to Scotus's view. So we needed to keep that in right. mind. But in their defense of Scotus, they they also are still acknowledging even subtle ways that yeah, the the paradigm has changed in terms of a participation mm-hmm. metaphysic, and that has implications for not just soteriology but even ecclesiology, which will really I think come to life. You know, if Scotus is more or less the seeds here, I think it begins to come alive with someone like you know, Occam and Beale. Hi, friends. This is Matthew Barrett. We are taking a break from our conversation on the Credo podcast because I have some exciting news to share with you. I am the director of the Center for Classical Theology. And this November, November 13th, to to be exact, the evening before ETS, uh, we will have our kickoff inaugural lecture in San Antonio, Texas. To deliver that lecture, we have asked Carl Truman to give an address called Why We Need Classical Theology Now More Than Ever. I hope you will join me for this lecture, and you can register by going to uh, credomag.com. There you will find a page for the Center of Classical Theology, which will tell you all about Carl Truman, when the lecture will take place, and how you can register today.
we're nearly to the Reformation now. So we're, we're getting some of those uh, puzzle pieces in place. You're bringing us right up to the edge of this, you know, what we call the Via Moderna, the modern way, uh, nominalism. Now, some Protestants may be familiar with nominalism as a term. And, you know, I can imagine some a particular strand of uh, Roman Catholics or uh, Eastern Orthodox even uh, listening to this conversation and saying, yeah, yeah, amen, I'm, I'm right there with you, uh, Matthew, I'm right there with you on, on sort of the description of what you, you know, seem to be advocating as the preferable philosophical mode. Uh, but this is exactly where the Protestants get off track is they adopt a nominalist, a hopelessly nominalist soteriology and a nominalist ecclesiology. And in fact, you know, some some people will even say this secularism, this modern secularism is the Reformation's fault. It is the fault yeah. of Protestants who have, you know, contracted this nominalist virus and they've brought it into the modern world. So if you would connect the dots now from the Via Moderna, what is the modern way? What is nominalism? And uh, how how did it kind of make its way through figures like William of Ockham uh, to Gabriel Beale? Mm. And then talk to us a little bit about how this fits into the whole situation of the reformers and their rage against scholastics and scholasticism. When you read someone like Luther, he seems to to really go out of his way to rage against the scholastics. But you and your book, you you describe how it's it's not necessarily that he's describing the realism that is encapsulated in some scholastic thinkers like Thomas Aquinas, but that there's a nominalist stream that he's reacting against. So so tell us a little bit about how nominalism makes its way um, to the era of the Reformation and how the the reformers and their reaction against quote unquote scholasticism. Uh, should be read in light of all of that. Yeah, I, I think this is where the rubber really meets the road, to, to use that saying, because with you know, how, however under the soil, under the surface things may be with, with Scotus, things definitely come above the surface with Occam, William of Occam. Right. Here, it's not just that you have voluntarism perpetuated, which you do, but you also have a rejection of realism. Now there's some discussion, you know, is Occam more of a conceptualist or anomalous? But that small discussion aside, the point is for Occam, the idea of universals is just illogical. Mm. Particulars do not have, have to be substantiated in universals. Universals are only those uh, nomina, th- those mere names or concepts or terms for the, those individual things in the actual universe. And for this reason, Occam, well, he... he right, there's just, just to summarize, there's no such thing as humanness. There's just a whole bunch of these creatures that walk around on two legs. We can, as a heuristic, lump them all with one designation. Let's call them humans, right? Yes. That's, the, that's the name that we're sort of uh, attributing. But there's no, there's no real unity behind all of these things. That's just the name that we've given to kind of conveniently lump them all together conceptually. Yes. This actually has ramifications for, say, like the human intellect. Uh, The intellect does not depend then on a universal entity for knowledge of, of objects in this world. And so the senses, for example, well, your senses can take in the experience of of a of a particular but that doesn't mean that there's this transcendent idea that 
well, that's irrelevant. You know, he, he Occam says. And so the difficulty with this is it raises the issue of, well, then how do we explain like the cohesiveness of the things that we experience in reality? And here Occam turns to what has been called the principle of parsimony. Two things share commonality due to a, a third thing. He doesn't exactly, well, I think we could put it this way, that he would say, well, the two things by themselves are similar since only particulars exist in the end. Mm -hmm. And that is, a, well, that's quite different than, than that previous answer. And so as a theist, Occam then offers, he comes along to offer a more supernatural explanation, which then that's where his voluntarism comes through, because as a voluntarist, he can be committed to this radical conception of God's absolute power. We just know things are the way they are because God decides that things will be that way and they will have this commonality. Uh, and, you know, here I'm, I'm summarizing him just, you know, very, very broadly. But when you encounter, say, sensible things, well, it doesn't result in an image of those things in, in one's mind as if its form can be abstracted from its matter. This is, you know, more along the lines of Thomas. Rather, this abstraction, it's, it's just a mute point because, because of the lack of universals. So all that to say, this has certain consequences. Uh, for example, when we talk about God, well, for Occam, he still believed we can know things about God, but if that knowledge came from philosophy, then it's probable. It's not necessarily certain. Nominalism has implications for natural theology as a project altogether, uh, at least as it, as it was construed before this point, because a denial of universals then becomes quite essential to a very aggressive approach to the subject of, of natural theology. And from there, so many other things follow. I mean, critics will then say, well, does this you know, open the door to skepticism? But even in, say, theology itself, uh, can we even still have substantiate a doctrine of the Trinity, for example, if universals, they don't have objective existence, then what keeps the persons from becoming mere individuals or, or even mere names? And so, uh, but, but then we come right to the heart of it, right? Is participation itself, participation through divine ideas, is that even feasible or even necessary anymore? The point of all of this, I mean, the implications are a thousand, right? But the point of all this is with Occam, we have now a very radical turn and the question is raised, is there actually intrinsic value anymore? And as you can imagine, this is, <laughs> this is very alarming for the church because they want intrinsic value, especially when it comes to, uh, say, the sacraments. So any sense of subjectivism is quite scary for them and quite threatening. But behind all of this nominalism, I think at the root of it, Occam has really severed theology and philosophy, faith and reason. And in the end, you, you do have, we don't have time to get into this, but when you look at how he works through his, his razor, Occam's razor as it's called, you suddenly have a, a greater widening, a divide between faith and reason that you just didn't quite see before, at least not to this extreme. And so Occam... He doesn't necessarily reserve any assurance that reason could remain agreeable with faith, at least in the, as it was in the past. Now, all that to say, 
this is a, a definitive turn away from that ancient way to what is sometimes called a more modern way of understanding not just philosophy, but even theology itself. And uh, it's not surprising that someone like uh, Gabriel Beale, who is living just on the eve of the Reformation, well, Gabriel Beale, let's think 15th century here, Beale now comes on the scene and he applies, say, voluntarism, for example, to say, well, if Occam's right, then couldn't it be the case that God just makes a covenant, which he thinks is gracious, by means of his his sovereign will, so that if you do your best and if you do what lies within you, well, then God will forgive and God will reward you in the end. And this becomes, well, it'll preach. Beale is very concerned then with, you know, not, you don't make excuses for yourself. You must do your best in order to be rewarded in this way. This is entirely reliant on this via moderna mentality, because at least with Thomas Aquinas, you have had an intellectual approach where grace is primary. He would never have said, for example, that you must do your best and then God will reward you with with, with the grace and, and forgiveness, etc. For those before Gabriel Beale, no, grace has to be primary. But for Beale, all of a sudden, if God's will is primary— uh, and you don't have this intellectualist commitment, well, suddenly God can actually just make this what appears to be a gracious decree that then sets in motion how salvation will be achieved. There's all kinds of interesting debates between, you know, Heiko Oberman and Alistair McGrath. Is Beale Pelagian or semi-Pelagian? But the point is, Luther tries it on. <laughs> Luther mm-hmm. is reading, yeah. when we look at Luther's education and the professors that are teaching them, What are they teaching him? They are teaching him the Via Moderna, and they're having him read some of the works of Beale. And Luther, more than most, I think, actually takes it seriously and says, well, if God has made this covenant so that if I do my best, then I I, I can rest assured. Well, Luther, in the end, doesn't find it very assuring. And even though Beale promised that, no, God will come through, he will actually reward you, Luther began to question this. Well, if God is so voluntaristic, how do I know that? What what if he changes his mind in the end? What if he decides that there's a better option? And the other issue is more existential. Well, how do I know if I've done my best? And this begins to really play yep. Luther because it's not then just a matter about, of God's will, but my will, if it really is so dependent on me, well, do I know that I truly was as penitent as I should have been in the confessional? Perhaps I wasn't. And so this begins to plague Luther in all kinds of ways. When you look at 1517, for example, our eyes are often drawn to, you know, the 95 Theses. But just before that, Luther writes this disputation against scholastic theology. And sure enough, you might, you know, think by the title, oh, here is, you know, Luther standing against 500 or, you know, 700 years of scholastic thought. But actually, Luther it has specific targets in mind. There's SCOTUS. Occam and Beale. He names them again and again and again because he has had enough. He is quite uh, frustrated with their philosophy and theology. He doesn't think it actually works in practice. But more importantly, Luther has a pastoral mind and he's afraid that this is actually going to encourage the church 
in a direction that's not Augustinian at all. So to answer your question, mm-hmm. Sam, I guess the, the short answer is if we simply paint someone like Luther as if, oh, here is someone who's just the carrier of this voluntarist, nominalist issue into modernity, well, it's just not that simple because Luther himself is taking issue with at least parts of it in terms of his soteriology. And likewise, right. I think when you look at other reformers who more or less move out of that, you know, 15, 17 context, what do we see? Well, you look at uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli or John Calvin or Henrik Bollinger, they have a doctrine of participation. Now, it will look different in terms of its application in soteriology and ecclesiology, but that's simply because they actually are assuming participation in terms of philosophy and theology at large, it's in their doctrine of God, it's in their understanding of providence, it's, it's, it's buried in their view of union with Christ, but they want to bring it along so that it's more correctly defined in, in terms of, say, justification in the church. So all that to mm. say, I suppose the, you know, the popular narrative, and you'll see this across the land, you know, it's not just radical orthodoxy, it's Brad Gregory, it's, it's many, many others. They will blame Protestants and say, you're at fault. So you're the reason why we end up in secularism where there's no participation in God whatsoever because of this voluntarist nominalist idea. But it's not that simple. Actually, the reformers yeah. are quite mindful of participation in the end. Yeah, and I think this is a good time to signal back, point our listeners back to the previous episode when we talked a little bit about how when Luther was lobbing his objections to the scholastics, and he particularly had the uh, scholastic thinkers of the Via Moderna in mind, it's not uncommon throughout Luther's writings to hear him or to read of him including Aquinas in this mix. But again, that was because he had received, inherited a view of Aquinas that was colored by Beale. And so it's not so simple as to just say this is Luther reacting uh, you know, against basically everything uh, Aquinas stood for because throughout the Reformation and beyond, you also have other figures that are also objecting to similar things that Luther is objecting to, but they're finding resources from Aquinas to help them criticize the Via Moderna. And so, you know, of course, they're, they are still going to disagree with Aquinas, but their disagreements are not the same as their disagreements with the Via Moderna on some of those other issues. And so, yeah, yeah it's it's basically just more complicated. It is than, more complicated. Uh, it's often painted. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if listeners want a really great work, it, it's an older work, so you have to go dig it up and find it. But John Farthing has written a book on Beale in particular and Thomas Aquinas. And he shows this chapter after chapter where he, he looks at the way that Thomas is being presented to Luther by Gabriel Beale. And I actually have a, a whole chart trying to summarize this research in in my book. But he basically shows yeah, sometimes Beale does a, an accurate job, but but when it comes to some of the issues Luther was most concerned about, Beale misrepresents Aquinas as if he is very much in agreement with Beale's own voluntarist mm-hmm. uh, understanding of, of soteriology, which debatably is Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. That's key because Aquinas is being filtered to Luther in this way. When you have a bit more hindsight you'll begin to notice, well, other reformers, they don't have this same upbringing in, in their educational experience. 
you know, someone like Martin Bootser, I think he's able to see things more broadly and, and recognize, okay, yeah, when we talk about salvation, we have strong disagreements with Aquinas, but they're not on any level close to what instigated the Reformation with, with Luther reacting to someone like Occam and Beale. That is exactly, a, a yeah. type of Pelagian or semi-Pelagianism that is altogether uh, on another level. At least someone like Aquinas maintained the primacy of grace and predestination and, and, and so much more. Yeah, I think that's that's good. And it's it just causes us to scratch below the surface a little bit and not just take it for granted a uh, surface level reading of the text and just say, who are the names mentioned, but actually talk about you know, what are the ideas uh, in play? It forces us to basically dig below the surface a little bit, which is why, you know, this book is a intellectual and theological history. We're not just, you know, recounting the names and the places, but also getting underneath them to the ideas as they came into contact with one another. And uh, on that note of ideas coming into contact with one another, maybe we can end here, changing directions a little bit, there was another movement that occurred alongside, sort of concurrent with the Reformation, and was at, at varying levels related to it. And that's what we call humanism. Um, it's related to, you know, when we talk about the Renaissance. So one question, I, I, this is the way that I see secular historians sometimes talk about the Reformation from the outside. You know, they're, they're not really doing the the work that we're describing of sort of getting under the skin of these thinkers and interacting with their ideas on their own terms. So often they will just kind of put the Reformation under this broad umbrella of the Renaissance and simply call it a, a theological humanism movement. Yeah. So the Renaissance is this broad movement. You have humanism, but then you have the theological version of humanism, which is the Reformation. And so why shouldn't we do that? Or should we do that? How, how do these historic developments relate to one another? Well, I think you're onto something there. This is a, an old habit that sometimes dies hard. <laughs> yeah, sometimes the Reformation, because rightly so, we see traces of humanist influence on the Reformers. Uh, everything from you know the way they're translating the Bible to the way that they're returning to the sources, ad fontes, and, and so much more. But if we're not careful, we, we can assume that well, it could even be puzzling what why was it not the case that just all, you know, Renaissance humanists were not reformers? And that can be puzzling. Or a, a more common one is, well, then to be a reformer meant that you were in line with, you know, Renaissance humanism, but you were not scholastic. And I think we just have to recognize both of those are not accurate. Mm, Again, yeah. things are more complicated than sometimes we we give the impression with our caricatures. So when we talk about you know the Renaissance, here we have in mind that that general period, you know, roughly thirteen hundred to sixteen hundred A.D. And it simply is referring to Christianity being born again. And you know what does this mean exactly? Well, Paul Christeller has done some fine work here to say that uh, if we talk about something like humanism in particular, he says, well, we we mean merely the general tendency of the age to attach the greatest importance to classical studies and to consider classical antiquity as the common standard and model by which to guide all cultural activities. So you get a sense there from what Christeller says of what it's after. There is a retrieval of classical sources, Greek and Roman, both essential, 
And as they retrieve these sources go, or go back to the fountainhead, as they call it, they do so in a very particular way. Some are in Florence, Italy, for example, uh, one, one of the centers of Renaissance thought, and they're devoting themselves to recovering classical voices, uh, Cicero, for example. But the thing is, we have to go deeper than that because that doesn't really get at the heart of their, their movement. Yes, there's this retrieval of ancient texts, but this isn't the destiny, but it's it's more the path, the means to a certain mm-hmm. certain end. And what is that? Well, in their mind, I mean, we could split it into two. It's it's a type of uh, perfection of eloquence, which they took seriously. And then secondly, they are so serious about the perfection of eloquence because this then means they think the renewal, uh, uh, really a cultural and educational renewal in the end. And that, to them, is a big priority. Uh, so it's not so much you know one specific philosophy or one specific theology, but rather they are focusing on the renewal by using these humanist tools, the renewal of an educational and cultural environment. So all that to say, yes, there's times when they are critical of scholastics, but you have to keep two things in mind. First of all, you'll notice that they will turn right around and engage with classics positively. So, so that should throw us for a loop. But the second thing is when they are critical of scholasticism, it's usually for very specific reasons. They're not crazy about their style of Latin, for example. Sometimes they're upset that uh, there's certain classical sources that they're not paying attention to and so on. So all that to say, I think the lesson here is we should be careful that we don't look at this period as if, well, the Reformation arrives and now you have a departure from uh, the Dark Ages. Actually, this, <laughs> this, this was a very fruitful time period. And because of that, you have reformers. You take Peter Martyr Vermigli, for example, just one of them. Well, to say that to be humanist is to be anti-scholastic or to go further and say to be a reformist, to be humanist and anti-scholastic just doesn't work because you take a reformer like like uh, Vermigli, he is both. Uh, he is indebted to both humanism and scholasticism. And in many ways, he is self-consciously attempting to embody both in a way that's complementary to one another. I think in the end, that gives us a better picture of what the Reformation, what its relationship was like with both humanism and scholasticism. And I think we even mm-hmm. see it in Luther himself when he's in hiding and translating the Bible or, or when he's looking for his works to come off the, the printing press. He is exercising this humanist spirit, and yet he's doing so in a way that he's still interacting with the scholastic method uh, in the university setting. I think that gives us a bit more balance, and it shows us that despite caricatures, humanism, scholasticism, reformation, these things are not necessarily opposed to one another. Right. Well, we have gotten past uh, part one of, of your uh, four-part <laughs> book. I'm sure our listeners can get a sense from from all of this that this is dense, and there's uh, quite a bit, but I do uh, commend this book as much as I possibly can, I I really do think that this book is going to be a game changer in terms of the way that we think about the Reformation. I think a lot of uh, trends in evangelical theology that are not so helpful are perhaps 
downstream from misunderstandings of the reformers and their in their historical context. And so for that reason, I think that this uh, this book can stand to really impact theology in a in a good way. I think you have a uh, Carl Truman write the foreword for this book, and in many ways, I, I, this book reminds me. Your book on the Reformation reminds me of his book on the rise and triumph of the modern self, which came out in 2020, and it kind of showcases the intellectual history of the wider Western culture and uh, expressive individualism and basically just tracing how ideas have consequences. And we've arrived to this moment in the modern era because of certain things that have happened. And so in order for us to know what to do moving forward, we really have to understand how it is we got here. It's a very helpful map. And I, I think it's fitting that you had him write the foreword for this book, because in many ways, I think that this book is a theological, evangelical, reformational version of uh, what he did in the rise and triumph of the modern self. You're doing a very similar idea with this intellectual history of the theologians. And I think really for us to be able to know how to move forward and make our continuing contribution to the great tradition in a meaningful way, we need to retrace our steps and understand how it is we arrived to this moment. And so I thank you for writing this book and I commend it to our listeners and encourage them to keep listening as a, uh, you have other great interviewers continue to pick your brain on the work that you put into this great work. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.